About 10 years ago, Dr. Bronwyn King was a doctor working on a lung cancer ward in Melbourne, Australia. Today, she fronts a campaign that, according to its website, has persuaded financial institutions for as much as $11 trillion in assets under management to join its global movement calling for a tobacco-free world. Since she launched her tobacco-free portfolios campaign, organisations including insurance giant AXA, French bank BNP Paribas and a UK pension fund Nest have all committed to divesting from cigarette companies. In this week's podcast, she tells me the story behind how she first got into the world of investing. Amid a perfect storm of government regulation, changing consumer attitudes and the coronavirus pandemic, she also explains why she now thinks there is a financial case, as well as an ethical case, for investors to pull their money from tobacco firms. So, Dr. Bronwyn King, thanks for taking the time to speak to me for this week's IC interview podcast. Um, I think, as your title suggests, you originally trained in medicine, not finance. So, how did you get involved in the world of investing? Thanks so much for having me, Oliver. Um, it's a great question. So, I mean, what on earth is a doctor doing having a discussion with the finance sector? It really is a, a very uh, odd career path that I've taken, and it really is an accidental career path. So I started my life, um, you know, with the dream to be a doctor and, uh, and I started my medical career on the lung cancer ward at a big cancer hospital in Melbourne, Australia. And of course I knew that tobacco was bad, but that three month experience really gave me a front row seat in a very bad show that I, I just couldn't imagine. Um, I was seeing people every day in their 40s, 50s and 60s who were suffering from tobacco. And unfortunately, tobacco causes very severe diseases that often can't be cured. And it really showed me what tobacco does to people, not just the actual person, but their family and the community. And, and it left a very deep impression on me. And then 10 years later, I was specialised as an oncologist And I found out by accident that my compulsory pension plan was investing my money in big tobacco. And that was the moment that really changed everything for me. And how did you come to find that out by accident? Well, I was actually buying a house with my husband and I sat down with the accountant and the accountant said, look, you really need to sort out your finances. How much money do you have in your pension plan? And I knew that pensions existed, but that was about it. So I sat down with the representative from the pension plan for all of the oncologists and all the health professionals at the big cancer center where I was working. And I had a meeting with him at the actual cafeteria at the hospital and he showed me how much money I had. And we had a nice little chat and I had a latte and I shook his hand and the meeting finished. And completely as an afterthought, I rushed back to the table and I said to him, oh, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money? And he looked at me and said, no, 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 you don't need to worry. It's all taken care of. You're in the default option. And I said, option, does that mean there are other options? And he looked at me and he rolled his eyes at me. This was back in 2010. He rolled his eyes and he said, oh, look, there is one greeny option for people who have a problem with investing in mining alcohol or tobacco. And then there was silence. And I said, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so are you telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh, yes, everybody is. And that was a really big moment for me because I had spent so much of my life really dedicated to my patients, to trying to help them despite the terrible impact of tobacco on them. 
and I'd watch many of them suffer terribly and many of them die. And then I found out that at the very same time, my own money is invested in the companies that make the products that are killing my own patients. And I just thought, I just, I just can't let that go. And so I've really, uh, I haven't slept very well since. <laughs> and uh, so it's been about 10 years of fitful sleep uh, since that moment, but it really has just turned out to be um, a great mission of mine and, and then of my team to try to bridge this gap between the global health sector that is fully aware of what tobacco is doing to people. So the world is on track for 1 billion tobacco deaths this century, this extraordinary number. There's only 7.5 billion of us. And that is the, the prediction of the World Health Organization. And we need to bridge that gap with health and finance because the problem is too big and it can't be fixed if the finance sector just continues business as usual, which is investing in tobacco, lending money to tobacco and insuring tobacco. That's got to change. And after that initial shock, finding that out about your own money, what were the first steps for turning that shock into a broader campaign? Well, first of all, I just had to find out more about it. So I remember asking the pension plan representative if he could just tell me where I had exposure to tobacco in my portfolio. And I'll, I'll never forget, he rang me back about two weeks later and I still have the piece of paper where I scribbled it down. I was on the middle of a ward round and he said, look, you've got exposure in the international shares portion of your portfolio and uh, just write this down, he said. And he said, your number one holding is British American tobacco. Number two is Imperial Tobacco. Number four is Philip Morris and number five is a Swedish match company. So four of my top five holdings in the international shares portion of my portfolio and being under the age of 50, I had a very large proportion of my portfolio was in international shares. So it was actually quite a significant exposure and, uh, and I'll just never forget um, that moment realising that that was my money and when you invest in a company, you want that company to grow and succeed and thrive and find new customers and explore new markets and I just couldn't think of anything that I wanted less. So I raised it with the other doctors and other health professionals at my hospital. I raised it with the CEO of the hospital. And as soon as I'd informed him, he, uh, he booked me in to present to the CEO and the investment team at the big pension plan for the hospital. And that started a conversation which has now turned into thousands of conversations in dozens of countries around the world, really calling on the finance sector to reconsider their views on tobacco and to, to learn a bit more, to appreciate that tobacco really is a very unique product and requires a different approach to almost anything else and, uh, and encourage them to, to go tobacco free. And so in Australia, I started working with uh, pension plans. Um, it was pretty tough at first. You can imagine back in 2010, 11, 12, the concept of sort of sustainable finance and responsible finance was pretty boutique back then, really, only really religious organisations had applied exclusions of really any kind back then. And so it went from that to now a really a very mainstream decision. And there's almost 50 Australian pension plans that are tobacco free. And then about four or five years ago, we took that conversation um, outside of Australian shores. And, uh, and one of the first places we started to um, explore discussions was in Europe. And uh, since that time, we've been very pleased to work with some of the largest financial organisations in the world. So we were very pleased to work with ABP, the big Dutch pension plan, they went tobacco free in 2017. We worked with AXA, they went tobacco free. 
in uh, 2016. And BNP Paribas, biggest bank in Europe, went tobacco free in 2017. And so that all led to us having um, just having the belief that we could make great change if we could just get in front of people and have these conversations. You talked about your accountant maybe originally looking down his nose 10 or so years ago at the greenie option um, for pension investments. But yeah, since then, um, the idea that you can have a positive impact with your portfolio has become more common and I guess less of a niche concept. In your international campaigning since then, I mean, where have you found fund managers and investors are most receptive to the concept of impact investing? And where is there still maybe some way to go? Well, I think um, I think it comes down to the country that I'm in, where I'm having the conversation, and I have a team that's uh, working across Europe and North America now. It depends on the appetite in the region. So sometimes, yeah, as I'm sure you're uh, listeners would be aware some countries are very advanced on this. So, for example, New Zealand and Scandinavia, the Netherlands, the French are very, very good at these conversations around sustainable finance. Um, we're now seeing more progress in the UK, which is fantastic. So, for example, USS just announced that they were implementing a tobacco-free finance policy and Nest as well now have signed up to our flagship initiative called the Pledge. So we're so pleased to see that, that movement. Um, in Canada, we're seeing a, a lot of leadership in this as well. And in states, there are pockets of um, you know, really um, you know, great advances in the states. But by and large, mainstream um, finance in the USA has been a little bit slower to adopt um, these, I guess, uh, the, the appetite for sustainable finance. So the barriers for us really depend on you know, what is the view of sustainable finance in that country? Where's everybody up to? And uh, we're always looking for the leaders. We, we find that most financial organisations haven't had exclusions in their policies before. So when we are asking them to apply an exclusion, it's a bit of a quantum leap for them. It's a different way of thinking. It is reinventing um, a previous strategy that they have had. And so it does take some time and it does take some uh, some uh, commitment from the leaders of the financial organisation. But once we get in, right in front of the right people and inform them, I mean, I have to say, I've never met a finance leader who feels good about investing in tobacco. And on the other side, um, they almost invariably, invariably feel great when they go tobacco free. You've mentioned some of the world's biggest asset managers and world's biggest pension companies um, have signed up to your pledge. Uh, your website says You've got um, billions in asset under management signed up to the tobacco-free portfolios. Um, trillions now, Oliver. Trillions. trillions. <laughs> it's now, yeah, it's 154 uh, financial organisations as of today. We've got an extra one today. Uh, so we're very happy about that. And they control combined total of 11 trillion US. So sorry to jump in there, but that's such a nice big number. We have to get that one right. Yeah. Who is it that um, joined the campaign today? Um, so uh, National Australia Bank, one of the big four banks in Australia. So we're very pleased to welcome them on board. So with all that money committing to divest from tobacco, has Big Tobacco become aware of your campaign and how they responded to it? Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're sure that Big Tobacco is aware of uh, this work and uh, we are a tobacco free portfolio is aligned with the united nations and the world health organization in that we have an absolute non-engagement policy with the tobacco 
um, industry. So, you know, we don't have any communication with them and that will always be the case. But absolutely, they have, um, you know, tried to push back in, in many ways, not just around our work, but around um, tobacco control uh, regulation, tobacco control initiatives, tobacco control campaigns in general, which is something they've unfortunately done for decades. And so we have seen that, especially uh, this year, we've seen uh, tobacco companies try to join uh, many different kinds of sustainability um, initiatives, and they've tried to sort of adopt the word sustainable or the SDGs or, um, you know, try to, you know, from our point of view, we would say it's trying to improve their social licence to operate, when in fact, you know, we would certainly argue that they don't deserve a social licence to operate um, at all. Um, and we've also seen tobacco companies really try to increase and accelerate their sponsorship of mainstream media and try to, you know, get, get on the agenda um, of all sorts of things this year, especially during COVID, which of course is quite a quite a, a contradiction given that the world is really focused on health at the moment. And um, and certainly, you know, if we look at the impact of various health, um, if we look at the impact on health this year of various things, um, COVID has obviously been the really dominating um, impact in 2020. And at, at the moment, you know, COVID has tragically caused um, about 1.3 million people to lose their lives this year, which is tragic. But if we look at the number of deaths from tobacco at the moment, it's approximately six times greater. So the scale of impact of tobacco is really um, extraordinary and something that we shouldn't uh, divert our attention from. I spoke with um, filmmaker Richard Curtis recently about his new campaign, which is similarly calling for more ethical pensions. And we kind of touched on the issue of how you can get ordinary people engaged with where the money is invested. Um, you've spoken about all the engagement you've done with, I guess, the big finance houses who have to be on top of where they're putting their money. And maybe ordinary people would be disturbed to find out maybe where some of their pension is invested. Um, but what do you think is the answer to getting people engaged with their own money and finding this out and then, I guess, subsequently taking um, the action that uh, you want them to take? Well, I think that we're really in an era where people are realising their power. And I think it's a great thing. People are demanding more transparency and uh, more awareness is, is really escalating around the power of money. Clearly money makes things happen or it makes things not happen. And uh, individuals, I think, are slowly coming to the realisation that they have a lot of influence. So I think that we will see increasing obligations on pension plans to disclose what they're investing people's money in, which will make it easier for people to make a choice. Um, are they happy to have their money invested in X or Y, or would they rather would they rather it not? And so at Tobacco Free Portfolios, we have um, a new tool to make it easier for people to see if their pension is invested in tobacco, and it's it's called the Tobacco Free Finance Pledge Stamp, and it's a stamp that organisations, uh, big pension plans or banks or insurers, they can adopt if they've signed the Tobacco Free Finance Pledge. And we're really hoping that that will become a symbol that will be easy for people to see and easy for people to recognise um, as tobacco free. But going back to Richard Curtis, you know, I mean, it's been fantastic to see the amount of interest he has garnered for his Make My Money Matter campaign. 
And I think it really speaks to the millennial generation. It speaks to people who care about the planet, who care about fairness, who care about basic human rights. Um, it doesn't make sense to champion those kind of themes in one aspect of your life, but then have your pension uh, invested in a contradictory manner. And I think that that alignment between what people really want and what their money is invested in is only going to increase in future. I guess as well as this awareness you talk about of people becoming more aware of the difference they can make to the world, people are also warming to the idea that there is a financial case for investing ethically. Um, but maybe many of these people still see divestment specifically as an extreme stance. So I was wondering why you've taken this stance with your campaign. Well, when it comes back to, um, I guess, the big picture, there are a whole lot of issues that fall into this basket that you might consider controversial sectors or sustainability issues. And there's many and many of them. So there's controversial weapons and guns and there's uh, sugar and alcohol and pornography and gambling and tobacco and human rights and ocean plastic and diversity and all sorts of different things. And we really encourage investors and individuals to note that actually all of those issues are really important but how you might deal with them might be different. And there's a, there are a suite of tools that big financial organisations can use to try to deal with those issues. The most common one that financial organisations employ is a strategy of engagement. And by that, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know, but by that I mean when you hold stock in a company, you can in fact engage with that company and encourage that company to do something better. And this has been a very effective, effective strategy in a whole range of scenarios, especially around things such as, for example, diversity on boards. And so if you want to make sure a company has a diverse board with a wide range of people from different backgrounds and genders, you can sit down with that company and engage with them and nudge them towards doing that. The difference is with tobacco, engagement is futile because the only acceptable outcome would be that the tobacco company ceases its core business. There is no safe use of tobacco at all. And the, it's not just me who has made that up or is suggesting that. The UN, the United Nations and the World Health Organization have a specific and explicit non-engagement policy and recommend that for the tobacco industry because of the fundamental conflict of interest between the human right to life and the human right to health and a successful tobacco company. It just, they just are irreconcilable. And so in these very specific circumstances, exclusion might be a reasonable um, choice. And we certainly advocate that for tobacco. Maybe some people might say, yes, I can see the maybe moral nice case for divesting from these companies, um, but maybe I don't want to take the financial risk of leaving some of the biggest companies out from my portfolio. I guess what would you say to the people who say, yes, they can see a moral case for doing this, but Big Tobacco makes billions every year, they're some of the largest companies on the stock market, and maybe they're reliable dividend payers as well. Why should these people divest when they might depend on these investments for their retirement? Well, I think coming back to your comment earlier about um, you know the rise of, I guess, ethical investment or ESG investment, and um, the evidence around that showing that in fact um, ESG investments are outperforming um, or at least matching the performance of more conventional strategies, um, you know, we're certainly seeing that when it comes to tobacco. So 
most of the financial organisations that have gone tobacco-free have in fact done very well following their um, exclusion of tobacco. In 2017, tobacco shares peaked. And since then, over the past three years, there's been a very dramatic decline in tobacco share price, so much so that in 2018, tobacco stocks were the worst performing sector on the market. Some people might not realise that. Since then, they've dropped significantly again. So some tobacco companies have lost more than 50% of share price in the last three years, some of them even more. So an example here is ABP, the big Dutch pension plan. When they went tobacco-free, they did an analysis one year later and found that, in fact, their plan, which is, is a very big plan, but their plan was 700 million euro better off after getting rid of tobacco one year later. So they're making a good return and and having a really you know solid retirement and a comfortable retirement, of course, is very important to investors out there. But actually, being tobacco free is the best way to do that at the moment. And certainly, um, the the reason why tobacco companies have had that squeeze on share price is because of a whole range of risks that have all converged at the same moment. And these risks remain present and in fact are intensifying. And what are those ongoing risks to tobacco companies which you think are driving these share price changes? Yeah, I think there's a range. So to start off with, there's a regulatory risk. So there are 182 parties, which means countries that are signed up to the UN Tobacco Control Treaty. And those countries have said that they're committed to implementing tougher tobacco control regulation, which reduces the number of people smoking. There's a litigation risk whereby, I mean, there's a whole range of different um, litigation cases going in many, many countries. But the one of most interest, I think, uh, is the, um, if we look at the case uh, of Quebec province in Canada, they sued the tobacco industry to recoup the health costs that were incurred by the state because of tobacco. And it was a very long legal case, but they won. And this has set off a chain reaction of other um, uh, provinces in Canada, but other countries as well, such as Brazil, that are now looking at suing the tobacco industry for the costs that they would otherwise externalise to the community. Their argument is that those costs should be on the balance sheets of tobacco companies, not incurred by the government. So there's a litigation risk. Human rights risk is a very big issue. So I have to admit, before I got involved in all of this, I did not know that the tobacco industry significantly relied on child labour in its supply chain. So the US Department of Labour has a list of 16 countries that use children for tobacco farming. And an estimate um, was made recently that there are 1.3 million children around the world involved in tobacco uh, tobacco growing, which is obviously completely unacceptable and completely unsustainable as a business model. And then the other really big risk um, that has got a lot of airtime of late is that the number one ocean plastic is cigarette filters. Now, many of your listeners probably are not aware of that. And I also was not aware of that until quite recently. I thought it was plastic bottles or um, plastic straws or plastic bags, but in fact, it's cigarette filters. And we know that the world is increasingly putting its attention towards the environment and, what, and, and how we do need to be more sustainable in that respect. In addition, um, tobacco farming accounts for 5% of global deforestation. So 5% of deforestation because of one product that invariably uh, harms people. So it is, um, it, there's a whole range of risks you can see from a whole range of different angles that are all squeezing at the same time 
to really uh, throw into question whether tobacco companies should have a social license to exist at all. So yeah, you have all these ongoing headwinds for tobacco companies that you've just described. Um, but just looking at the most recent results for various tobacco firms around the world, coronavirus seems to maybe produce some mixed outcomes for them. I mean, some have reported positively on cigarette sales, while others have reported big drops in revenue. I mean, maybe with more spare income and time, people are lighting up more at home, or maybe people are more aware of their health and they're buying less cigarettes. Um, I mean, what do you think will be the long-term effects of the events this year on the tobacco industry? Well, that, that, that is a really interesting um, question, and I'm not sure if I can predict, but I mean, I think the point you raised is really important to note, which is that um, many people this year have prioritised their health more than ever before. We've also seen here in Australia unprecedented numbers of people have contacted our quit line, which is um, our service to help people quit smoking. And we have seen that in many other countries. Um, we also noted that during that first lockdown, that global lockdown in March and April, that several countries actually um, included tobacco sellers in their list of companies that had to completely shut down. And so um, we do think that that probably did um, uh, encourage some people to quit because they simply couldn't access um, uh, cigarettes in the way that they previously had. It, it, it's true that um, that this this may be mixed around the world, and I think we're really in an early phase where we're gathering data and seeing that impact. But clearly, COVID is going to be around for a while, and we know that it's a disease that has a terrible impact on the lungs and the heart and the blood system, and so does tobacco. Uh, we know that if you get COVID and you're a smoker, you are much more likely to have a serious illness, to end up in intensive care and to tragically to pass away from COVID. So um, we would certainly in encourage anyone um, who is smoking to, to, to really consider quitting. There's, there's really never been a better time. So you're saying how this year, um, it seems like more and more people are quitting smoking and that might in turn materialise in a fall in cigarette sales for tobacco companies. But um, Imperial brands and British American tobacco probably still have some way to go before being knocked off the FTSE 100 in the UK, for instance. And younger generations might be smoking less, but we still have some decades before the older generations have passed away. And it could be some time before those various regulatory and consumer-related risks that you're talking about um, to tobacco companies materialise in a kind of existential financial impact for these firms. So when are you realistically hoping we'll see the end of big tobacco? That's a great question, Oliver. And I don't know if I can look into my crystal ball and give you a really accurate answer there. But I think that when we think of how to bring an end to what we call the tobacco epidemic in, in the world of health, we have to acknowledge that it's a very complicated problem and it means that it's going to require a multifaceted approach to bring it to an end. And it will consist of many iterations of uh, different efforts. So, for example, you're right, it takes some time for countries to implement different policies. But once they do implement them, they then usually strengthen them. And each, uh, each uh, next step in that journey of tightening regulation does result in a better educated population and more people um, having a totally smoke-free life right from the start 
and current smokers are encouraged to quit. Um, it's certainly um, important to point out that we don't leave middle age and older generations to just continue smoking their whole lives. It's really important that we encourage quitting um, so that uh, we can really speed up the end to tobacco. But regulation is one element, education is another element, having political leadership and being really bold and innovative uh, with new tobacco control regulation is important, but finance is absolutely crucial. There's just no way we can bring an end to this if all of the big pension plans and sovereign wealth funds in the world continue to invest in tobacco. If banks keep lending them money, if insurers insure them, it just undermines all of the great work of all of the other sectors of society. And I think the Sustainable Development Goals have really thrown um, a fresh light onto some of the world's biggest problems, showing that we, we need genuine partnership across sectors to really address big global challenges. And tobacco is absolutely one of those. So how have you gone about achieving a tobacco-free portfolio yourself? Is all your money now invested in ESG or impact funds? That is a great question. Well, you know what? Initially, when I found out that my pension was invested in tobacco, the pension plan that I was with had one, uh, what they called green option. Um, and at the time, I felt that I actually had a bit more influence if I stayed in the regular option and just advocated for that to be changed. And eventually that is what happened. In fact, it was only two years later that that is what happened. The default option changed. And, and went tobacco free. And so we really, we know that that can happen and we really encourage, you know, the default and the baseline to be tobacco free. But I think, you know, I am getting to the middle ages. I, I don't like to admit that I am there, I, I'm afraid. But I think that if, if someone in my age group is really passionate about this and cares a lot about this, I know that people younger than me, half my age, they just won't be as patient. They will want to match their, their choices with their investments in an instant. And so um, I really encourage any finance leaders out there to make sure they're as transparent as possible about what is in their portfolios, what is in the funds that they are offering so that um, people can really you know, make those choices and make them quickly. Dr. Bromwin King, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to hear about the last 10 years of work you've been doing and your plans for the future of tobacco-free investing. So thanks again for your time. Thanks so much, Oliver. It's been uh, great to be here and I'd, I'd love to hear from our, any of your viewers and keep the conversation going. Thanks so much.